This is where the plot starts to thicken a lot. They looked at 10 double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of gluten specifically. And this was in people who had non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And they found that only 16% of those people who had this diagnosis um, had symptoms when they were challenged with gluten. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are, whether you're listening on your iPhone or you're watching us on YouTube, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Today, we will be talking about gluten. It's big business. You know, gluten-free this, gluten-free that. You can't go anywhere without seeing gluten-free. Millions swear that it's almost as bad gluten is as saturated fat. They say that gluten is the bane of their nutrient existence. And they say that without it, they feel better physically. They feel better mentally. They perform better in the gym. They have a sharper memory. They have more energy. And they even say that gluten-free diets can be used to treat autism. But are any of those claims true? Or is this just another fad that we've bought into? Well, dietitian Lee Crosby is on the case. She is like the Sherlock Holmes of nutrition, and she has cracked it, and she will be here to present the evidence for us. Now, you've probably become familiar with gluten because of celiac disease. So we're also going to be learning about what that is, how many people are affected, and why for them, a gluten-free diet is in fact the way to go. But for the rest of us, well, let's find out. Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Today, we are talking about a hot topic, one that so many listeners have written in, and they said, please, by goodness, golly, can you please do a show on gluten? And so, yes, of course, we can do a show on gluten. And I thought that the perfect person to talk about gluten with me is registered dietitian Lee Crosby from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. Welcome back to the program, Lee. Great to be here, Chuck. And the pleasure is all mine. And before we get going, I just want to say thank you, because just a couple of weeks ago here at the office, there was a shout out event where everybody gives thanks and, you know, pats each other on the back. It's a very uplifting, positive environment that we work at. I was not able to attend said event. I was elsewhere on assignment. However, when I returned to my office the next week, I found this nice thank you card from one Lee Crosby. She said, thank you for being an enthusiastic, tireless, and talented advocate for healthy plant-based nutrition. You are saving lives one bite at a time. And Indeed. Lee, two things. One, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. You are so welcome. And two, thank you for doing the exact same thing. Well, Thanks. Yeah, you are you are a no, talented you. advocate who is saving lives one bite is a t- one bite at a time. Not just down here on the show, but upstairs with We're your trying. patients. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. All right. Pat on the back out of the way. Woohoo! 
All right, let's talk about the topic du jour, and that is gluten. A lot of people are saying, well, man, if you want to be healthy, if you want to feel great, you have to take gluten out of your diet. Matter of fact, I was just um, with uh, some uh, athletes over the weekend, and the one was talking about how much better he felt, how much better his yoga performance was because he took gluten out of his diet. I was just chomping at the bit to get to this show because I'm not really seeing a correlation there. Maybe you can explain that uh, one to We're going to dive into all the possible reasons that gluten might be an issue and why it's usually not. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, let's let's start as we all typically right. do with the very beginning. So yes. first of all, what is gluten? Is it this evil that everybody seems to say that it is? Yeah. It's the dark force taking over the world. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not. It's a protein found in wheat. And just so you know, wheat goes by lots of different code names. There's semolina and camud and farro and all these different ancient grain varieties. So wheat, um, rye, and barley. So that's what you find gluten in. Again, gluten is a protein, and it's actually what gives bread its, like, stretch and structure. So if you ever had one of those, like, you know, artisan bread loaves and you pull it apart and it's, like, got that real stretchy thing, that's the gluten. That's what's giving it that sort of structure. And it's actually made up of two proteins, glutenin and gliadin. That'll Uh be nerdy important in a few minutes. Glutenin and gliadin. Yes. All right. Mark that one down, boys and girls. Um, I think that also a, a lot of people know about gluten, not just because of water cooler talk at the office, but right. because of w- – w- that was a serious swig of coffee. I'm oh, hoping sorry. that you're watching this on YouTube Did right that come now. on the mic? It, I mean, it was – It's before noon. It is. I mean, that was – I'm impressed right now. It's linked to a lower risk of Parkinson's, okay? I'm, I'm very happy for you. That was quite <laughs> impressive. Um, okay. <laughs> so anyway, a lot, of people, a lot of people are really familiar with – gluten because of celiac disease. There's the link there. I think that even on a lot of breakfast cereals, there's that mark there that's saying gluten-free celiac disease. What is the connection there? What is celiac? Right. And again, that mark is actually great for people who have celiac disease. So it is actually an autoimmune disease um, in which eating gluten leads to damage, autoimmune damage in the small intestine. And it actually affects about 1% of the world's population, they think. It used to be that people thought it was a lot more rare, but Again, better science. We're getting better numbers. Um, And about 2.5 million Americans are actually undiagnosed, which puts them at risk for long-term health complications. So celiac disease is serious. You don't want to mess with it. Um, It does have a hereditary component, too. So if you have a first-degree relative who's been diagnosed with celiac, so that's a sibling or a parent, um, you or a child, you have a 1 in 10 risk of developing it yourself. And the only treatment is a strict gluten-free diet. Wow, that's a pretty strong... Uh, hereditary link there. One it is. It is. So, that's and that's actually why screening is recommended for anyone who has a first degree relative that they should be checked periodically to see if they have developed it. Random. Uh, so, you and I have talked a little bit about those DNA tests where they can check to see if you have various markers. Yes. Is celiac one of those? DNA? It actually is now on okay. 23andMe. Okay. It is. Interesting. It is. Let me double check that. I am 99. Point Forty-four percent sure. Ninety-nine point forty-four. Okay, <laughs> that, I mean that. I would play those odds. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about okay. it. Okay. Yes. Um, and what happens if somebody who has celiac disease has gluten? Yeah, it's actually not great. Um, this is, but it's kind of interesting. Does interesting count? I love okay. interesting. So they're again, their body mounts an immune response that it, it attacks the small intestine, particularly those villi lining the little fingers that mm-hmm. increase the surface area of the small intestine, so you can absorb more nutrients. Mm. Um, 
this is another digression, but we're going to go with our own because it's fun. So you may or may not have learned in like high school biology that the surface area of your small intestine is the size of a tennis court. Does that ring a bell? No. Not in high Just school biology. something that no. I paid attention to. Okay. That's Anyways. Cool. I mean, look, you are who you are. I love it's it. It's so neat. It turns out they've done new studies and science is now showing it's actually a healthy small intestine. It's only about half the size of a badminton court. And I just thought I would share that with exam room listeners. Half the size of a badminton yeah. court. Oh, Fun fact for your next cocktail. Still party. a pretty sizable, you know, court there. <laughs> if you've seen it badminton is. on the Olympics, I mean, that's. that's I mean, it's big. not bad, but yeah. you know. So again, it's still a significant surface area, sure. and what allows that to happen in this little tube are all these little fingers that increase the surface area we have to absorb. So, what happens coming back to celiac disease is that. Remember I said that gluten was made of glutenin and gliadin? Yes, ma'am. All right. So the gliadin protein fragment comes into contact with something in the small intestine, an enzyme called tissue transglutaminase. Hmm. Yeah. There's going to be a quiz on this later. Glutaminase. Glutaminase. Close enough. All right. So those enzymes... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those enzymes actually are capable of altering the gliadin molecule, which, for lack of a better way to put it, makes it look shady to the immune system. Hmm. So the immune system can actually then start mounting an attack against the gliadin molecule specifically. The gliadin molecule can also cross-link with that enzyme itself, that tissue transglutaminase. I told you it was going to get a little sciencey. up Yeah, here. here we go. Nerd out. And that can then trigger the body to have a reaction. This is where the real autoimmune part comes in to that tissue transglutaminase enzyme itself. So now you've got the body reacting not only to the gluten as a foreign invader, but also to its own tissue transglutaminase, which hangs out in the small intestine as a foreign invader. That's not good. You've got a full-blown war happening on You actually do. And the results of that, the collateral damage, is the small intestinal lining starts to get damaged. Those long finger-like villi start to flatten out. There are all kinds of changes that happen. And then the result is that you can end up with all kinds of symptoms, things like nutritional deficiencies because you're not absorbing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual sort of primo symptoms, can we talk about symptoms? Now? Yeah, but I mean, by all means, I would imagine that they kind of vary a little bit from childhood to adulthood. They do. And this is something where I think that the medical community is still sort of catching up when it comes to celiac disease because for kids, there are these sort of classic celiac disease symptoms. And we're really, we're talking about adults here. I just wanted to digress briefly to kids because they tend to have those symptoms that were along the way taught as classic celiac disease symptoms. So things like um, diarrhea, bloating, abdominal pain, like those are the symptoms that most doctors I think would associate with celiac disease. Sounds like IBS. It does. It does. Um, And weight loss. So those things are seen in kids. In adults, only a third of adults with celiac disease have diarrhea. Really? Right? And you think, well, you're malabsorbing things, right? That would give you diarrhea. But only a third of adults have that diarrhea that's, again, most doctors. And I think most people would think like, oh, celiac disease, digestive problems, diarrhea. Right. Um, they're getting other kinds of things like anemia, fatigue, bone and joint pain, osteoporosis, migraines, or all these. There are something like 200 different symptoms that can be associated with celiac. So you can see why it often as actually not diagnosed. And right now about, and some people to make it even more complicated, don't even have symptoms about, and this is from the Celiac Disease Foundation, about 40% of people have silent celiac. So they do not know they have it. Is that why there are so many people who go undiagnosed? That is correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So gotcha. what'd you say? That was two and a half million Americans alone? Yep. Wow. Yep. 
That's a lot. So again, and I think that it's just it's something that people need to be aware of, particularly again if they have one of those first degree relatives who mm-hmm. has it to go ahead and get screened because their risk is increased. All right. So uh, that just uh, that's amazing to me. That's a silent disease. Like yeah. that that's scary. No matter what it is, like honestly that's that's kind of I've seen it. I've like seen it. it before in the silent where they just had no idea and then got a diagnosis, and it was pretty scary stuff. So, so like completely asymptomatic, like completely asymptomatic. It wasn't just like, like athletic performance, all these kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. Not just yeah. like I'm pushing through. I'm okay. No. Wow. They that, they just had it. They wow. I mean, I don't know all the details on this one, um, but it was you know they were surprised. Mm. Yeah, we were all surprised. All right. <laughs> yeah. So aside from poor nutrition, mm-hmm. which we kind of talked about, uh, what other health risks does celiac pose for people? Okay. Um, lots, unfortunately, some big long-term ones if it's not treated. So about twice the risk of coronary artery disease, Ooh. three times the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that one is, is a scary one. Yeah, that lymphoma is linked to celiac disease. Um, there appears to be, well... There appears to be a link with the small bowel itself, but they also are an increase in risk for some of the non-intestinal variety. So that's there. And then um, four times the risk of a small bowel cancer, which would make sense. You've got this constant unremitting inflammation happening mm-hmm. in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are some biggies. Um, other things can arise too, though. So you can have an increase in autoimmune disorders. So things like type 1 diabetes or multiple sclerosis. And then again, these other things that some of them related to nutritional deficiencies because you're not absorbing well. So that would be the anemia and the osteoporosis, um, even neurological conditions, infertility, all kinds of things are linked to this if it's not treated. So, okay, that's interesting because uh, on a show recently, I was speaking with Dr. Kaliova, your colleague upstairs, Hannah Kaliova, mm-hmm. and yeah. we were talking about this case study that she did on, on Crohn's disease. So right. I was doing some research there. And it turns out people who have Crohn's are also at a higher risk for various cancers and heart disease, respiratory ailments, yeah. uh, kidney disease, I think, and liver disease maybe too. Um, you know, a whole host of things. And that just seems to be a real parallel there. And of course, we're also talking about a problem in the gut region. So, uh, you know, there, it's yeah, a thing. A lot of, there is some truth to, you know, a decent number of health problems begin in the gut yeah. um, or have a gut connection. So I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all. And also, again, in both of these diseases, you're seeing, if they're not controlled, you're seeing constant sort of chronic inflammation and the body's not really designed to work with that well. Mm. Inflammation is supposed to be a short-term thing that helps us recover from an injury or an illness and then goes back to baseline, not just having this constant being punched in the face, so to speak, from that kind of inflammation long-term. And I would imagine that the people who are asymptomatic, those risks are still there for them as oh, yeah. well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. And it also but it tells you just how resilient the body is that you can have your intestine starting to be damaged and not even know it because there's so much sort of built-in redundancy. Okay. Get no, man. The body's the awesome, okay. isn't it? Like the, it is the coolest machine ever. <laughs> it is crazy ever. to me that that happens. It's wild. Yep. Just the fact that there's something the size of a, a half of a badminton court that's absorbing things yeah. inside of me is just – It's pretty wild, it right? It is, man. Yeah. It's crazy. It's very cool. Uh, all right. Back on topic here. Right. Um, we mentioned that people who have a family history should be checked for celiac disease. Right. Uh, who else? Um, if you have an associated autoimmune disorder. So particularly, again, type 1 diabetes – autoimmune thyroid disease or autoimmune liver disease. And there are actually some other conditions too. Um, Again, the Celiac Disease Foundation website, if you want to take a look, is a really nice resource. It goes through all these um, for sure. We'll link off to that in the show notes for the episode. Absolutely. And then anyone, if you suspect you might have it, have celiac, get 
tested before you take gluten out of your diet. If you think you have celiac disease, go to your doctor and get tested first, please. Okay. That actually makes me I, – I run into it a decent amount in the clinic, and I find it it's just – it makes it a lot harder to get a clear diagnosis because if you've been off of gluten or mostly off of gluten for an extended period of time, you can get a false negative test back mm. when you go to get tested for celiac. So you could have it and not know it. Gotcha. And that's an issue because if you have celiac disease, it's a zero tolerance kind of thing for gluten, not like, oh, I'll just have an occasional something. It's a nope, never right. kind of right. situation. Right. Yeah. Status quo before you go to the doctor. Because, th- yeah. I mean, I would assume that that would give them the most accurate picture of what's actually happening. Oh, yeah. And it can anyway. – if you – again, because eating – not eating gluten fixes the disease for the majority of people. If you're not eating it when you get tested, the disease doesn't show up. Simple blood test? Um, typically. So yes, there's a simple blood test. If that's sort of an equivocal, we don't know, <clears throat> then they will go on to do a small intestinal biopsy. And that really is the full on diagnostic test Gotcha. is the biopsy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's interesting. All right. So do not change up your diet, boys and girls. Yeah. And that's the problem with this whole gluten-free diet fad is that actually it makes it harder to identify the people who really do have an, like a serious issue with gluten because if you've sort of tried it and haven't gotten screened, you get false negatives. It's a mess. All right. Yeah. So that's celiac disease. But there are people who will say, all right, well, I don't have celiac, but gluten is still El Diablo. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> what what are some other reasons that these guys are talking about right. and we'll trumpet here? Okay. So again, it used to be thought that it was celiac and that was it. Or like maybe wheat allergy, right? Okay. So that's legit. That's about, again, the prevalence isn't totally known. One paper is 0.2 to 1%. So pretty small. Right. So we got 1% with celiac and then like, we'll just be liberal or conservative, I guess. 1% who have um, wheat allergy. Right. Okay. So... But why, you know, huge numbers of people are following this gluten-free diet? What's their deal? Well, there is something else. There's a sort of catch-all term called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is also known as non-celiac wheat sensitivity. And that's in people who have symptoms that seem to respond, and you'll know why I say seem to in a minute, to a gluten-free diet, but have had celiac disease ruled out. Mm. So they've gone through all that diagnostic stuff, and they also don't have wheat allergy. Okay. So it's the people who have had those excluded, and they say, but I feel better when I take gluten out of my diet. So, and it actually, the prevalence or the percent of people they think that have this, 0.5 to 13%. So again, that's a wide range. I know. It's a really wide range. Again, and part of it's because it's so nebulous. It's sort of, well, is this, well, you think you feel better on it, so we'll just call it, and we ruled out celiac, so we'll call it non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Eh. Okay. But, so this is really, this is where the plot starts to thicken a lot. Here we go. <clears throat> there was a 2017 systematic review. They looked at 10 double-blind placebo-controlled trials of gluten specifically. And th- this was in people who had nine, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And they found that only 16% of those people who had this diagnosis um, had symptoms when they were challenged with gluten Whoa. in a placebo-controlled trial. So they didn't know if they were getting gluten or not. What's interesting is that 40% of them had a nocebo response. Have you heard of this? Nocebo? Uh, nocebo. Nocebo. Um, like, I'm just testing your... No, just, I mean, I, I could sit <laughs> here like, and I can speculate. Like but like, if yeah, man, like if I come up with the wrong answer, I'm going to look bad. So I'm bit. just going to... Just tell me. <laughs> but it'll be fun. Give me the nocebo. All right. Well, do you know what a placebo effect is? Yes, absolutely. Okay, right? So we can take a pill and just because the act of taking a pill, we're feeling better. Right. Nocebo is the opposite. You can take a pill and get side effects from that pill, even if it's just a, you know, a nothing pill. So like it's psychosomatic. 
in a sense. So it, it's it's having real you're having real symptoms, but they are not necessarily caused by the gluten itself. And this is how this double blind trial works. So basically the way to look at this is that they had the same or increased symptoms in response to a placebo as they did to the gluten. So the gluten in a pill, placebo in a pill, or sometimes a gluten-free muffin versus a gluten-containing muffin, they were having the same or increased symptoms in response to both. Weird. Because the brain doesn't know if it's getting gluten or not, so maybe it has the assumption that this could be gluten. Who knows? That reminds me of that old quote, I think, therefore I am. <laughs> I don't know that this is exactly that, but kind well, of. Well, it's the power of the brain. I think I'm taking gluten. I think I'm going to have an adverse response, th- response, therefore I am. Oh, yeah. I mean, we this, this could be a whole separate episode about just the power of the mind, the fact that they have to control for it in every single clinical trial. It's That's wild, right? Crazy All right, time. so back to this. So anyways, yeah. like almost half of these people who had this diagnosis – they were just having a nocebo response. Mm. So only 16% of them were having symptoms when they were challenged in a blinded fashion with gluten, which says, you know, okay, about one in five people are having symptoms. They don't have celiac disease. So non-celiac gluten sensitivity is real, <clears throat> but it's not really that common, right? And we're thinking, okay, it's maybe half to 13%, huge range, but only 16% of those are really having a reaction to gluten, right? right? So what's going on? So a couple of things that could be making a difference. We had talked about nocebo already. Right. Um, other, there are other proteins in wheat that you can be sensitive to. And then uh, wheat contains something called FODMAPs. Those We've talked about that on the yeah. show before. Yeah. So these are fermentable carbohydrates that can cause IBS symptoms of gas and bloating in people who are susceptible. And wheat actually does contain a FODMAP. It's, co- it's called fructans, a little body of FODMAPs there. So some people who are having these symptoms think, oh, I'm sensitive to gluten. They're actually sensitive to the fructan that comes along with the wheat for the ride. Fructan. Fructan. Is, the, is that like a... Uh, like fructose, is that in the same, or is it a you know, e I instead of a u? Don't have the chemical structure. I would assume so. Yeah, it just seems too similar. All right, like, someone on Twitter, check I that. I know. Check <laughs> us out. Uh, all right, so check this out. All the numbers that you put out there, they're still relatively low. Correct. Okay, so if one percent of the population has celiac, right? Another one percent has wheat. Uh, and maybe we'll just double that and say another 2% yep. has some sort of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, right? right? So that's still 4%. Right. Why then is this whole no-gluten diet so popular? I don't know. Well, <laughs> All right. Well, at least you're honest. I'm God joking. bless you. I'm joking. I actually have some really <laughs> good ideas. It's just – it's so popular. Like It, it is. Sort of, it just boggles my mind. That's more what I'm trying to get at. Um, fun fact, in 2016 – $15.5 billion spent on gluten-free foods. That was more than double the amount spent in 2011. I'm so sorry, this 15 is like and a billion? billion. Bill, so this with is, a B. Yeah, with a B. The Jeez B kind. Louise. Yeah, so this is like a this is a lot of money. And as you know, there are all kinds of claims attached to this. So, you know, overall health, gut health, weight loss, more energy, athletic performance, yeah, like you said. Too. You know, even improving your mood. And we just, we don't have good data to support most of these unless it's someone who falls in this 4% of people. Um, but just to the point of how popular this is, this was back in 2013 before this was starting, you know, was still just catching fire here. Right, right. Survey on, reported on NPR found that nearly one third of U.S. adults would prefer to reduce gluten consumption or cut it altogether. And I see that in the clinic where people just think they've heard gluten free is good, so gluten must be bad, so I want to avoid gluten. Which, again, if you're in that 4%, that's really important. If you're not, you could be causing yourself 
more harm than good. All right. But I do want to just really quick because I, sure. I know there are going to be people listening to this who are like, listen, I feel better on a you know a gluten free diet, and it's not about nocebo or whatever. Like I I totally feel better. Fun fact, no you know placebo, you do actually feel better. Those are real. Sure. You know, real reactions. Yeah. But even pushing that aside, um, again, if someone has IBS, mm-hmm. then they're taking FODMAPs out. They're going to get some symptom improvement. If they really do, again, have that non-celiac gluten sensitivity or wheat allergy or celiac. Um, and then here's what gets me. When most people cut wheat out of their diet, what do you think they're cutting out? Bread. They're cutting out bread. They're cutting out donuts and cakes and cookies. They're not Ooh, cutting out vulgar wheat. They're not cutting out wheat berries. That's not what they're cutting out. They're cutting out trashy foods. There it oftentimes. is. Oftentimes. There it is. So no again, more Doritos. And not that all bread is – I'm not saying that all bread is trashy food. But they're no. cutting out things that are going to make you feel lousy regardless. You know, right. I mean, If you're eating a donut or two or more every morning for breakfast, you're going to feel better when you trade that out for something else. For sure. Very likely. No question. So, And then I have to say, this is so great. I was reading one of these review papers and they use an acronym for um, people who don't who are on a gluten-free diet who don't need to be. People who avoid gluten, which comes out to P-WAGs. P-WAGs. It sounds all piratey, doesn't it? P-WAG. <laughs> so, those are, so P-WAGs are the majority of people buying gluten-free food. I just had to share that. P-WAG. P-WAG. It's also like a cool nickname. <laughs> kind of is. What's up, P-WAG? P-WAG. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, so wow. here we go. So P-WAGs, people who are cutting out the gluten, right? right. Uh, they don't fall into that 4%. Correct. All right. They don't need to do this. So what happens then? What are the risks if they do take the gluten out? Like, are they going to face some adverse symptoms here? Well, again, one that we already talked about, I want to come back to again, because it's so common, is it's going to delay diagnosis of whatever, if they have it, they'll be like, oh, well, I'm having some stomach issues. I'm just going to cut out gluten and see if that helps. Yeah. Well, that makes it harder to tell if they really do have an issue with gluten when they finally do go to the doctor. Um, They could have something more serious going on that gets pushed off because they're like, well, I'm going to try a gluten-free diet for like a couple months and see. Like, If you're having gastrointestinal symptoms, please go to your doctor. Or things that are not gastrointestinal, but you're like, well, maybe it's wheat, go to your doctor. Find out. Right. Um, And then again, you might be doing an elimination diet. Maybe your tests come back negative and you're going to do an elimination diet. And that's the gold standard for really finding out about the sort of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, Cost. Holy smokes. Oh, I'm betting there's a markup on these (laughs) foods. There's a gluten-free markup. I joke. I, oh boy, planned my wedding a long time ago. But I used to joke that there was a wedding markup. Like something that was, you know, $2 would suddenly be $5 just because it said like wedding or bridal. Oh, oh yeah. Ridiculous. (laughs) I feel like it's the same for gluten-free. And no doubt that there's a little more manufacturing cost. But this is a lot. 2008 analysis. And I think this is Canadian grocery stores. I couldn't lay hands on the full paper on this one. I could just get the abstract. But it was a Canadian journal. Um, and they found that gluten-free products were 242% more expensive than their wheat-containing counterparts. Wow. Holy smokes. Wow. That's going to hit you right in the wallet. Yes, it is. Yeah. So that piece. And then there are some possible nutritional deficiencies if that gluten-free diet's not carefully planned. Not saying that you need to have wheat in your life to get everything you need, but there are some things to watch out for for people who need to eliminate gluten from their life. Jeez Louise. Yeah. So right. there are some pretty good reasons to just keep on eating wheat if you don't have any issues with it i mean that's oh man uh that's that's just wacky pants it's wacky pants i mean it i think that's the technical term is just 
What? Because it becomes it's so gimmicky, you know. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's not just a gluten free thing. It's the you know the keto foods, anything like that, anything that has a buzzword on it. Oh, you're yeah. going to have that upcharge associated with it. And what gets me is people are like it's gluten free. It's healthy. So it's gluten free brownies and gluten free donuts, and they reach it because they think it's gluten free. It's healthy. I'm like it's a donut. <laughs> oh, you know what the all timer was for me, oh, uh, and and this was keto. Uh, was at a salad bar at a very well known grocery chain. I will not mention them by name because I would think that this is quite embarrassing. Protecting the not so innocent. Uh, yeah, so on the salad bar itself, it had keto kale, keto spinach, Are you serious? keto pepper, I'm, and I have the pictures to back this up. Did they also have gluten free? Uh, I did that not see it. I did not see. I, they may have, but like I was just Gluten doubled over. Kale. I was. What other kind is? I there? mean, I'm dead serious, <gasps> wow. right? Wow. And you know, I'm That's sure they were charging an extra buck a pound or something oh, yeah, like you can that. Raise the price. You know, it's keto, keto it's kale. Like, kale. are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Like, yeah, uh, I'm sure it is the same thing, you know, gluten-free kale. Like, yeah, come on, wow. man. Just wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's upsetting. Um, so if <laughs> – Okay. Well, to people like us, it's upsetting. It is. I mean, it really is. Uh, so Entertaining maybe? Uh, I, I would imagine though there's also the risk if, you, if you're taking certain foods out of your diet that uh, you're going to be uh, missing some key nutrients as well. That is right? a, now, that is true. And okay. that is something that, again, can you have a well-planned gluten-free diet? Sure. But most people aren't – sitting down like, hmm, I'm going to eliminate gluten. That means, and let's talk about what we're going to be eliminating. So iron and B vitamins, mm-hmm. and these are present in whole wheat, and they are added back to white flour, which is not my preferred whatever method. You know, they add right. back. When you ever see enriched flour, that is just code for processed, refined, all the bran and stuff has been stripped away. Gotcha. So, but either way you go, you're getting these B vitamins, so thiamine and riboflavin and some folate and niacin. So those are added. And actually extra folic acid is added to white bread products. That was an effort to decrease neural tube defects because a lot of women don't know they're pregnant until they're a month or two in. And that's when neural tube defects have already happened. You need to eat enough folate for that. So that's why they've added folate, folic acid, synthetic folic acid to a lot of white flour products. That's an interesting piece of history right there. It is an interesting piece of history. It's maybe not as interesting because it's preferable to get your folate from whole foods. Well, naturally. And there's just very sort of sketchy data that potentially increased intake of that synthetic folic acid could be linked to breast cancer down the road. It's really marginal. I'm not even going to – it's – barely there okay so i don't want people to like not take a prenatal or something because of that right. please do what your doctor tells you there if you, you are pregnant or considering conception uh, but it's just something i'd rather people be getting their you know folate from food forms mm. and folate comes from foliage or greens so greens They're, eat your greens and it, beans. All, it, all it always comes, comes back. back to greens and beans greens and beans always um, okay. Again, like I said, don't stop taking your prenatal. Don't stop taking your prenatal. Take your prenatal. She just looked right into the camera for that <laughs> I did. One. I'm serious. I mean, you're, you've been ordered. Take that prenatal. <laughs> take whatever your doctor tells you when it's in pregnancy time. You do or that. Or else Lee is coming for That's you. That's right. <laughs> but the other, the big piece here, what I think is probably the bigger piece is fiber. Right. Most Americans are not getting enough anyway. Mm-hmm. And what they are getting is likely coming from wheat products, a decent chunk of it. Mm-hmm. You stop taking in wheat products. You stop getting fiber. You stop. 
doing other things. You know what I mean? Ah, see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Daily constitutional things. And that brings me to that brings me to my next question. There, uh, yes. Fiber Queen is yes. so you you eliminate those things. Obviously, with fiber, you do tend to get backed up a little, constipated. A little but what yeah. else happens? Okay, can I? I came up with this when I was sort of looking over stuff for this. I'm going to talk about the three C's of fiber. Oh, here we go. Constipation, cholesterol, and cardiovascular disease. Oh, wow. Right? So we had just talked about the constipation piece in so many words. Cholesterol, soluble fiber can lower cholesterol. Right. So that's an issue. Um, and then cardiovascular disease, we know that whole grain products, and that includes wheat, are linked to better cardiovascular health outcomes. Nice. So you take that stuff out. If you're not replacing it with other whole grains, you could have an issue. So that. Um, and then, of course, if you're not getting enough iron, iron deficiency anemia is an issue and the symptoms, anemia, fatigue, weakness, all these things, not fun. And then B vitamins, you can also end up with anemia if you have a folate deficiency mm-hmm. or a B12 deficiency, although B12 not typically found in bread. Um, and again, we talked about neural tube defects. So that's an issue. Again, it's not to say you can't have a healthy gluten-free diet, you just have to be a little more careful. Gotcha. Uh, Can you give us an idea of some uh, grains out there, Uh, gluten-free grains? That's the thing. There are so many. So I think a lot of people go gluten-free and they just start increasing their intake of animal products as they're like, oh, grains are bad. No. So we have, okay, brown rice, oats that are marked gluten-free because there's often, and all these grains, you want to make sure that they're marked gluten-free, particularly if you have celiac disease because that has a legal limit of 20, I believe it's 20 parts per million of gluten in that product. Gotcha. So that really does mean something versus just like some of them will be like healthy. Well, that doesn't mean anything gotcha. on the label. Um, so we talked oats, brown rice, wild rice, quinoa. We got teff and amaranth and millet, sorghum, the grain, not the syrup. Uh, buckwheat is one of my favorites that it does not get enough credit. It's really you good. you ever had buckwheat pancakes? Yeah, they're delightful. Yeah. Just saying. All right. So those are some options. There are others that I've missed, I'm sure, but that, that's a lot. And these are these are all natural. These have not been altered to be gluten free. No. This is no. They just born that way. Okay, there you go. <laughs> all right. So that's something you can get behind. Um, Easy peasy. I feel like we've covered a lot here. We did cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting though that you know a little bit more research is still needed here. Oh yeah. Um, but I-, I love the fact that you know the nocebo response is isn't that wild? That was cool. a surprise to me. So the, the nocebo, like that's kind of my big takeaway. What what is the big overall takeaway? Do you think? Okay, this? there are a couple. <laughs> I hate to be broken record, but my goodness, if you think you have a problem with gluten, go to your doctor and see if you actually do before you take it out of your diet. Right. Because fun fact, I didn't mention this. If you have taken it out and you do need to get tested for celiac, there's a very good chance they're going to do a gluten challenge with you, which basically means putting you on two slices of wheat-based bread for six to eight weeks. But you have to do it under medical supervision because if you do have celiac disease, when that happens, they may need to move you straight to a biopsy. Mm. So that's just not fun. So get get checked out first. That's first one. Um, but the other piece here is that the vast majority of us, like 90, what do we say, 94, 96% 96, of us, yeah. give or take, can safely and delightfully, might I add, enjoy these gluten-containing grains. So wheat, rye, and barley, like these are healthy foods eaten in their whole minimally processed form. And, you know, you don't want to exclude them unless you have a medically determined reason to go on a gluten-free diet, in which case I recommend that you go see a dietitian who can help you make sure that you are getting what you need having taken gluten products out of your diet. Speaking of seeing a dietitian, uh, if you plug, are in plug. the Washington, D.C. area. That actually was not my, my plan. Oh, you set it up so well. It's a nice segue. It's like 
t-ball it's like right there <laughs> bam let me just hit this home run oh, if you wow. are in the washington dc area and you need to see a dietitian the wonderfully talented and oh so smartly crosby is available for consultation at the barnard medical center uh you can check that out barnardmedical.org or yep. give a call 202-527-7500 202-527-7500 she would love to see you sit down with you maybe chat a little gluten yeah look we can at talk gluten overall health yeah, yeah. I, I love your Chronic diet disease, analysis. Weight all these things, yeah. I, like, I think it would be fascinating to be a new patient of yours and come in with a food journal and just get your opinion on, like, hey, this is what I've been eating for the past week. What am I doing wrong? Well, and also, what am I doing right? I have to say, there's a lot. I try Ooh. to do that first because most people are doing a lot of things right, and they're just like, oh, I'm messing up. And it's like, well, you're doing all these things right. Let's just let's just tweak these things over here and get it all in line. That's some solid optimism. Yeah. You are a glass half full per- person. I, I tend to be most that's, of the time. That's great. Mm-hmm. 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you no, Okay. No, I'd say 96%, just like the 96% right, of us like who it. can tolerate gluten. You are 96% yes, glass half tolerate, full. tolerate, but enjoy it. No, man, that's, that's great. Yeah. You know, sometimes we do have a tendency to go negative, and you, you don't really have that. I do. It's just not – it doesn't – I don't know. It's more in my own head. You've never expressed it here? like No, no. When it comes to people, I'm really optimistic. Yeah. Like, yeah I'm not a total Pollyanna. Like, I know how the world works. Right. But for the most part, I think people don't give themselves enough credit. Yeah. So, you know, let's just start there. I like you. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to pop up to your office for a little pick-me-up. Make me feel go. better about things. Done. All right. BarnardMedical.org. You can also find Lee on Twitter at Veggie underscore Quest. And, of course, uh, Instagram, Lee at Veggie Quest. And... The website itself, veggie-quest.com. Lee Crosby, thanks for, thanks for hitting us with some knowledge on the you gluten. Bet. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So did you get caught up in the gluten-free hype? If you did, really, there's no shame in that game. Just after we got finished recording, Lee shot me an email, and she asked for me to pass along some important information to you. And that is, for a while, she went gluten-free too. She thinks that she got that nocebo effect that we were talking about. And she even posted a ton of gluten-free recipes on her website, VeggieQuest. So if you head over there and you see those, that's why. Interesting stuff. So if you did get caught up with the gluten-free craze, don't feel bad. It can happen to the best of us. Switching gears now. There was an interesting study to hit newswires recently, and it's one that we can all appreciate. Because who wouldn't want to have a little extra money in the bank, right? So here's one that can actually make those accounts swell up a lot. There was a study out of Taiwan that found that people who eat a vegetarian diet spend up to, get this, 25% less on medical expenses than people who eat meat. This is from the Zuchi Vegetarian Study, and more than 12,000 people volunteered to take part in this thing, so that's a huge sample size. And researchers were comparing diets that were rich in fruits and vegetables, soy and, and nuts, to diets that ate less fruits and less veggies but had a lot more meat and fish in them. And what they found was that vegetarians were generally healthier both physically and apparently with their 401ks. 
So where were they saving? Well, they found that they were spending less to treat high blood pressure and high cholesterol, also depression and both heart and renal disease. All of these things we already know from data that shows that a plant-based diet can help reduce the risk and even reverse, in some cases, a lot of those ailments. So it kind of goes to logic that they would be saving money, the vegetarian group. So let's crutch some of those numbers even further. All right. So this study was done over in Taiwan, but back here in the United States, I checked in with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's a federal agency. And they tabulate medical spending with what's called the National Health Expenditure Accounts. And what they found was that in 2017, the average person in the U.S. had close to $11,000 in medical expenses. Now, if vegetarians save up to 25%, that means, on average, they'd be saving about $2,700 every year. And we tend to spend more on medical expenses as we get older, so as we age, guess what? We'd save more. So, what would you do with a few thousand extra dollars in your wallet every year? Pretty cool stuff, right? And we've linked off to that study in the show notes for this episode. Really interesting reading there. I think that you'll enjoy it, so... How about them apples? Well, actually, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about next week on the show. When we take a trip out to the orchard and find out everything there is to know about those red apples that are so sweet, those golden apples that are so delicious, and those green apples that are so mouth-puckeringly tart. We're here at Water's Orchard. I'm taking a look at these apples, and some of them obviously much deeper shade of red or of pink, and others are kind of like this cross between green and red. It's really quite mm -hmm. beautiful. W with the pink lady in particular, is there a flavor variation when one is a little bit more green versus when it's a little bit more red? Or yes. Yes. Okay. Redder the, the redder, the, the, the sweeter. Uh, yeah, the redder, the, the better. There it is. There's the rhyme. The redder, the better. Yeah. Okay. Like, not very good English, but... <laughs> <laughs> Are you a nutrition guy? That's our wheelhouse on this podcast, mm -hmm. my friend. Yeah. A riper apple is going to carry more nutrition than one that's not ripe. I think I saw, was there a Granny Smith? Yes, over there, there are some Granny Smiths here too. I used to okay. love Granny Smith as a kid. The mm -hmm. tart apple. You know, a lot of them are so sweet, but that, that Granny Smith, it just had that tart flavor. Sometimes it just made your whole mouth pucker. Well, actually, if you lit a Granny Smith mature on a tree, it doesn't have the tartness. It's got more flavor. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Does it turn a deeper shade of green too? They, it's, it gets a blush, like an, a reddish, pinkish blush on it. Really? And it's a little yellow tint, and it's really delicious. And I think because it's green, they feel that they can pick them earlier ah. <laughs> to get them to market. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's where the tartness comes in. That's where the tartness comes in. Honey Crisp Audio coming your way next week on the show. So make sure that you subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast and wherever shows are available. And please also, when you do, leave a five-star rating and a nice review so that we can share this information with as many people as possible. We'd certainly get all jazzed up about it. See what I did there? Jazz? Apples? They're actually my favorite. What's your favorite apple? I'm a jazz apple guy. Love Honeycrisp, but a jazz apple, for me, is the way to go. 
If you ever have any questions that you'd like for us to answer on the show, please don't ever hesitate to ask because soon we will be unveiling the doctor's mailbag. This is your chance to ask the MD. You ask and the doc will answer. Find us on Twitter at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and at PCRM. We're also on Instagram at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and the Physicians Committee is at Physicians Committee. So shoot us your questions using the hashtag exam room, and maybe we'll get you an answer in the doctor's mailbag. And that is going to do it for us this week. My thanks again to the magnificent case-cracking Lee Crosby. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.